Hello and welcome to another episode of Just Emergencies. I'm Rebecca Richards and I'm joined today by Professor Lisa Eckenweiler to discuss COVID-19 and migrant health workers. Lisa Eckenweiler is Professor in the Department of Philosophy and the Department of Health Administration and Policy and the former Director of Health Ethics at George Mason University. She's currently the Faculty Director for the Global Health Fellows Program, a joint program for the Department of Philosophy and Global Affairs, and the Vice President of the International Association for Bioethics. She's a member of the Independent Resource Group for Global Health Justice, and she has published widely on research ethics, including work on the concept of vulnerability. Her research at present focuses on global health inequities, refugees, migrants and other vulnerable populations, and humanitarian health ethics. In today's episode, Professor Eckenweiler will discuss how the COVID-19 pandemic has both had a disproportional impact on migrant healthcare workers, but also how the responses to the pandemic have relied heavily on these groups and their labour. I hope you find my conversation with Professor Eckenweiler as interesting as I did. This is Just Emergencies, the podcast where we show that global health emergencies are anything but just. In each episode, we'll explore an issue, question or event that makes us think about global health emergencies, humanitarian crises and how to best respond to them. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Just Emergencies podcast. How are you? Doing really well, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. It's really a treat to be here. You're one of our project collaborators, so we've worked quite closely together over the past couple of years. You're interested in the roles, positions and vulnerabilities that migrant healthcare workers have and face in our health systems. So broadly speaking, how has the COVID-19 pandemic um, affected migrant health workers? Thanks for that question. And it's it's hard to give a sort of concise answer to that, but I'll, I'll do my best to hit some highlights. So I think the first thing to say um, is that healthcare workers who are born in other countries and, and educated there, and we could be talking about doctors, nurses, nurse assistants, radiologists, dentists. So these people have, have for a long time labored under inequities in what we could call destination countries, the countries that they migrate to. But as the pandemic has unfurled, they've found themselves really on the front line of crisis response to their peril. So for example, there's now abundant evidence that shows that the BAME community, uh, which is Black, Asian, and minority ethnic doctors working in the UK's National Health Service, have become ill and died in disproportionate numbers. Now, it's interesting, I think, to point out here that a lot of these health workers as migrants were just prior to the pandemic in the midst of being herded out, and I, I use that term intentionally, of the country under Brexit. But in order to mobilize them in the country's fight against the virus, the government hastily extended their visas. 
We can also look to the substantial portion of migrants working in long-term care in the context of the pandemic. Now, this is a, a sector that's notorious for poor conditions, even in high-income countries, and has been for some time. This group, in addition to doctors and nurses, have also stood in harm's way as the pandemic has gripped nursing homes. So here I'm talking more about people who were like nurses' aides. These care workers, who are mostly women, and some of them residents or even citizens in destination countries, though they've been born and educated abroad as health workers, have also long withstood injustice as migrants. But in the context of the pandemic, they've been in a particularly vulnerable situation. There's one group I think that's especially interesting to give some attention to, and those are people who are seeking residence in a high-income country as migrants. So, for example, there's some interesting evidence about the experience of Haitians who are asylum seekers in Quebec and what happened to them in the pandemic, as they have been, awaiting decisions on their applications for admission. They only have access, by, because of immigration law, to temporary and part-time work. And that's work that they need urgently, right, for the sake of survival for themselves and their families, and which they also are hoping is going to strengthen their case for asylum. So many of these women have had multiple jobs working in long-term care, which is one of the few available options for them. They get referred to staffing agencies that have connections to long-term care institutions. So they have, you know, multiple jobs, and that means they travel from care setting to care setting. And what that's meant is it's heightened their vulnerability to exposure and infection. And as they move from worksite to worksite, if they're sick themselves and they pass on, that infection to vulnerable residents of long-term care settings. So here we could look at the relationship between, say, immigration policies, health policies, and also labor policy. And you mix that together with a reluctance to raise concerns that many migrants have, concerns about things like adequate staffing, adequate protective equipment, because they're afraid of everything from discrimination to job loss having their asylum claims rejected, and deportation. So all of these things come together to heighten their risk of exposure, illness, and death. It has implications not just for the migrant care workers, but also the people they care for, their family members, and the communities around them. Now, one last example I think is worth noting here of migrant care workers in, in the pandemic comes from the experience of, of high-income countries that recruited migrants who were living in other countries when the pandemic began. So, for example, you had Chinese and Albanian health workers being recruited for work in Italy. Immigration restrictions waived in order to bring them into the country. You also had situations where there were migrants living in a country whose credentials had not been recognized. So, for example, Algerian doctors living in France. So if we take all of these examples, what we see is that in combating COVID-19, high-income countries, what I'll call destination countries, were either already reliant on migrant care workers, like the BAME workers in the UK. So those countries who were already reliant on them were eager to retain them when the crisis hit, to also to grant status recognition to others who had been waiting and to welcome new migrants into the country who are living on the other side of borders under rapid immigration and licensing policy reforms. 
throughout the project, we're obviously very interested in this idea of justice during global health emergencies. What kind of concerns do the experiences and the situations of migrant healthcare workers raise for us or sort of force us to think about? That, I think, is really the heart of the matter here, is to think about this in terms of concerns of justice. The way long-term care has come to be organized under globalization, the way that it operates is in a way that erodes autonomy, not just a concern of justice, but autonomy, but also equality for these workers, and that really threatens their capability to be healthy. And when I say capability to be healthy, I understand that as synonymous with this concept of health justice. So there I'm drawing on the work of, of one of our colleagues, Sridhar Venkatapuram, right, and says we ought to think about health justice in terms of the capability to be healthy. So I think that's really the first thing, is that health justice is undermined for these workers. We want to think about the relationship between the injustice that the care workers suffer and the implications for the people they care for, right? So if we think about the elderly, or other sorts of vulnerable populations, a lot of times migrant care workers are caring for these vulnerable populations and their vulnerabilities, as in the case of the Haitian asylum seekers, creates vulnerabilities for the people they're caring for. If we think about the migrant care workers' capability to be healthy being threatened or health justice being threatened for them, in turn affects health justice for the people they care for. More generally, in terms of global justice, the concern here is for the capability to be healthy of people living in source countries. So those people suffer burdens of disease that are very often greater than that suffered by people in high-income countries. They're also dealing with aging populations, so aging is a global phenomenon. You know, those countries have urgent, pressing needs for health workers, but if those health workers are migrating, then they're not able to address them. So I think the biggest concern here, the inequities that people suffer in, in low-income countries will be exacerbated. Some people would think about these issues in terms of distributive justice. So, for example, the lack of personal protective equipment, or PPE, for these care workers that I described in hospital settings or long-term care settings as a problem of inadequate allocation of resources. So that's fair. I think we could also think about the unfair distribution of health workers around the world as a problem of distributive justice. But I think the better way to frame this is in terms of structural injustice. And the, the way that I understand that follows the work of Iris Marion Young. And she defines structural injustice in the following way. This is a quote from her work, Responsibility for Justice that structural injustice exists when social processes put large categories of persons under a systematic threat of domination or deprivation of the means to develop and exercise their capacities, at the same time that these same processes enable others to dominate or have a wider range of opportunities for developing and exercising their capacities. So I think if we put the experience of migrant care workers in the generally but certainly in the context of the pandemic, we can understand their plight and the plight of people in low and middle income countries in terms of structural injustice, global structural injustice. You know, that's what I mean when I talk about this combination of, let's say, health policy, how we distribute health workers around the world, labor policy, who gets paid for what kind of work, what our occupational health and safety policies are 
and immigration policy, right? Those things, just for starters, sort of come together in complicated ways to generate injustice against these groups of people. You add to that things like racist stereotypes, social norms that suggest, you know, that women are better care workers, that women from particular countries are better care workers because they're more obedient. Like whatever those stereotypes or unquestioned assumptions are, they function in a way when they come together with immigration policy, labor policy, and and health policy that generates these kinds of injustices. And the worry is is the injustice that people experience in their lives, but also over time, the implication in that it expands opportunities for people who are already privileged and constrains opportunities over time for people who are already vulnerable. So that's the worry with structural injustice. In this case, people in low-income countries that serve as source countries and people in high-income countries in destination countries, gathering all of the benefits and privileges that come from that. Throughout uh, conversation and discourse through this pandemic, another word um, that's popped up a lot in addition to justice and equality is this idea of solidarity. So can you tell us a little bit about what solidarity entails and what it means going forward and in terms of supporting migrant healthcare workers? That's a great question. It's it's terrific to see that that concept is getting, or that ideal uh, is getting more attention and I think traction. And I really think it's the one for not just public health generally and global health for us to really focus the most on and embrace. But I, I think in the context of the pandemic, it's really the thing that's going to get us through if we can manage to, to really embrace it. Just a quick sort of definition. So solidarity usually is understood as involving assisting and supporting other people. And critically, often at some cost or risk or burden to ourselves, right? So think about mask wearing in this context as an example. Like nobody would really choose to wear a mask unless it's super cold outside. But we do this. We accept this inconvenience, not just for the sake of ourselves, but for the sake of protecting the health of other people. So this is a really good sort of concrete example every day, you know, at this point. So, so that's the definition, right? And assisting and supporting other people, often at some burden or cost to ourselves, because we recognize something that we share, the fact that we're all vulnerable to sickness and that we're all frail and in need of care and, and need relationships of dependence with other people. So I think that's really the ultimate basis for solidarity. I and some other ethicists have more recently been thinking about solidarity as being a link to justice. We have this vulnerability that's shared, and very often we've contributed to the vulnerability of others through our contribution to structural injustice, and that generates a responsibility. Even if you don't want to link solidarity and justice, solidarity and solidaristic action make calls for action that, that don't necessarily say you have obligations for justice. It could just be, I recognize you as a vulnerable fellow human. And so in recognizing that, I'm moved to act, you know, to support you. Just in terms of like really concrete action here. 
and, and this is another thing I like about solidarity is people have defined it not just as an ethical ideal, but as a practice. It's an ideal that must be acted upon. So Fuyuki Kurosawa, for example, is I love his work on solidarity because it talks about the fact that there has to be labor involved in solidarity. You can't just talk about it. So it's not just legislative and policy reform, but it's volunteering and protesting and advocating. So in this context, what I would say is that solidarity calls for really concrete things like ensuring that people have adequate personal protective equipment, making sure that they have adequate education on all of the health threats that face them, working conditions that don't threaten people's health, supporting the right to raise concerns about things that threaten their health. And then much more deeply, right, what we're talking about here is some economic reform, like living wages and fair benefits for all care workers. People in long-term care, many of them are on public assistance or have more than one job and lack the kinds of benefits that other workers enjoy because they're regarded as unskilled. And anybody who spent five seconds in a long-term care facility would be pretty hard-pressed to describe the work that goes on there as unskilled. But that means that they don't have access very often to things like retirement benefits, health insurance, continuing education. So long-term care workers are in some of the worst, you know, suffer the worst plight. But even, you know, people working in hospital settings, clinics, and certainly people in home settings are really some of the most vulnerable workers in, in the healthcare sector. So I think, you know, really thinking about benefits for them that enable them to not live in precarity would be the best thing that we could do to show solidarity. The last point I would make, is, and this is a longer argument, I think that in terms of global solidarity, not just with migrant care workers, but populations in source countries, we really need to think about the way we invest in, educate, and train, and then deploy these workers around the world. I think there's really a need to move beyond organizing access to healthcare and the distribution of health workers along state lines. I think this generates all kinds of problems. Um, and we need to think about some kind of model of global governance for this. So you've uh, left us with no small call to action there to reform the, the global governments of global health. So thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us today. Um, that was very, very interesting and certainly gave us a lot to think about. Thank you so much for the chance to talk about it. So that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Episode transcripts are available below the episode description. We also have show notes on our website, where we not only list all the references mentioned in this episode, but also give you some further resources if you're interested in learning more about today's topic. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes, please email us at ghe at ed.ac.uk. We're also on Twitter as at Mitra and Rev underscore Richards. Be sure to check out and explore our website, Justice and Global Health Emergencies and Humanitarian Crises. For more great content, just go to www.ghe.law.ed.ac.uk forward slash. 
Thanks for listening and see you again for the next episode. This podcast is edited and produced by Rebecca Richards and made with funding from the Wellcome Trust.